Welcome to the Consulting Pipeline Podcast. In today's episode, I've got another, mm, let's call it a longitudinal study for you. Another conversation where I check in with someone that I spoke to previously on this same podcast. In this case, it's Josh Duty, And Josh and I spoke in episode 40 of this podcast. Josh is a friend. He's also a salary negotiation expert. He has a website called fearlesssalarynegotiation.com. He has a book by the same title. And he has a business around his expertise in salary negotiation. This is probably not what you do for a living. Josh is not a self-employed software developer. But I love this conversation because it gets into so many of the nuances around specialization and it gets into those issues with the added element of time. So it's been a year since I spoke to Josh. And in this conversation, you'll hear about what's happened, not every little thing, but a lot of the important um, events that have occurred in his business, a lot of the important decisions that he's made in response to those events. And, you know, I think you'll get a sense of how he thinks about this whole thing over time. And it's just fascinating. So when Josh and I spoke about a year ago, he had just made the decision to narrow down his focus for his coaching services to to software developers, not self-employed software developers, in fact, um, usually software developers who are negotiating some kind of salary agreement for a full-time job. So there's that decision, and you'll get a sense of what happened after that and, and the consequences of that decision and the things that, the, the sort of other moving parts that that set into motion. But I hope as you listen to this conversation, you'll you'll pay particular attention to how Josh thinks about his service offerings in light of his specialization, because specialization is not just a one-dimensional decision. It's not a, a, a decision you make and then everything else stays the same. It's a strategy-level decision in your business, and so it has consequences. Most of those consequences are positive, but it forces other changes. And so, again, that's one of the reasons why I, I so enjoyed this conversation with Josh is you get a sense of the nuance and the interconnectedness of all these decisions that go together around pricing and profitability and what services to offer and how all of that connects. I think you can tell I'm pretty excited about this conversation I had with Josh. I mean, he is a friend, so it was just fun to get to talk to a friend, but it was also really invigorating for me to hear how things have played out over the last year in his business I hope you get as much out of the conversation as I did. Here's my conversation with Josh Duty, salary negotiation expert. We're live. Josh Duty, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on again. It's good to be back. Yeah, again. So um, I'm looking at episode 40 of this podcast. July 6, 2017 is when I published that. It means I probably recorded it like the day before. <laughs> You're that back. Right. Yeah, you're back. Thank you um, for an update on what we talked about in episode 40, which is you narrowing your positioning to focus. Well, why don't I let you say it in your own words? So where were, where were we back in July 2017? 
Yeah. So I had just sort of made a really big change in my business, which was a combination of um, positioning, but also sort of focus for the business. Mm -hmm. Um, The big change that I made was that I um, had been really struggling to get revenue and traction. I wasn't sure if my business was going to survive. And I had a long conversation with a friend who said, your problem is that you're focusing on selling kind of low cost products and volume. And that's a really hard business to build, but you have a super valuable offering, which is your coaching. And so he encouraged me to basically flip my business on its head and even change my positioning from basically an author and product guy who also does coaching to a salary negotiation coach who also happens to sell products. Do you you have any idea where he was coming from in that advice? Because I'm thinking actually of a pretty recent conversation I had with, I think it's... Uh, the FreshBooks co-founder who who made this just kind of what seemed like a really blanket statement. And he said, it's easier to sell, to make money selling expensive things. And I said, yeah. hold on, like, what are you talking about? And then he just kind of ran through some basic math. You know, if you want to sell, if you want to make X amount of money selling something that costs $10, you have to reach so many more people than if than selling something that costs $100 to make the same amount of money. I mean, was that kind of where this guy was coming from, this friend of yours? or? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about who he is. So his name is James DiVirgilio. He owns um, – he's a partner in a, a fiduciary wealth management firm here in Gainesville. It's a small firm. Mm-hmm. And so his clientele is – I don't know what his minimum – you know, money under management requirement is for customers, but it's a big number okay. of money that they manage for their customers as a fiduciary. And so his whole market and his whole brand uh, is as a essentially a, a premium service provider to to higher end customers. Mm-hmm. So that jives very well with your where you're kind of going with that, which is that's the way he thinks all the time is basically like, how can I get the people with the most value to be gained from my expertise because uh-huh. um, he could manage clients who have $10 and he would be doing exactly the same thing for them. Or right. he could manage clients who have, I don't know, six and seven figures and do the same thing, but get tons more leverage and more value for his clients and therefore be able to capture more value as a business owner. Um, so I think that's kind of where he's coming from. And he also offers some, some services like financial planning and, and things like that to some of his clientele. Mm-hmm. And those are, you know, for them sort of the lower, lower dollar, you know, things that you would need to do a lot of volume on if you're going to build a whole business on it. I um, see. So, so I do think that's probably where he was coming from was, you know, well, you can get a lot more leverage and find a lot higher value in offering this coaching that you do as opposed to selling, you know, $50 eBooks in volume. Right. right. Uh, and I, I will echo what you said earlier, which is I have found it's about as hard for me to sell like a $5,000 coaching engagement as it is for me to sell like a $200 ebook bundle. (laughs) Can you, can you unpack that a little bit? I I mean, of course I believe you, but Mm -hmm. uh, when you say as hard, do you mean time talking to a prospect? I I know you're not really talking directly to prospects for a $50 ebook, but how do you mean it's as hard? Actually I do and have today. I talked to a prospect for a fifty dollars book because they emailed me and they said I was looking at one of these bundles and it has all these things that I want and has all these other things I don't want. Do you uh-huh. have a smaller bundle that uh-huh. only has the things that I want? And I said, Well, I think this is the product you want. And they emailed back and they said, Well, that product. And now I'm having like you know, like I'm I'm burning lots of time. Yeah. Probably not even sell something is what that was like. As soon as I saw the first email, I was like, This is not going to be a customer. But I have sort of a a philosophy, but also sort of a 
I don't know what the word is, but like uh, an obligation, I feel like to like interact with people who email me. Sure. Um, and so I'm, I'm not emailing this person hoping to close a deal. I'm emailing them because they asked me a question. And I have an answer to it. Um, but I probably spent, you know, as much time emailing them to not close a deal on what would be like a hundred dollar product that I suggested to them. I don't think they're going to buy it. I've, I've spent less time than that booking the intro call that I have for a coaching client tomorrow, who would be a $3,000 client. Okay. So, so you've seen, you, you have seen a sort of head to head comparison of these two different types of buyers. Yeah. This is, I'm, I'm going to chase down a little rabbit hole here for a second. Okay. Do you think you could sell the coaching? Cause we're kind of getting ahead of where we are in the timeline, but this yeah. is coming up now. So, oh, well, do you think you could sell the coaching without the book? I think that would be challenging. So, okay. So they are sort of, to an extent, uh, the coaching feeds off the book to an extent. Yeah. In direct ways and indirect ways. So the direct way is just, you know, you've heard it before, like having a book is a good sort of piece of social proof that you're an expert in your field. And I think, I think that's true, but also the book is what has allowed me to become the expert on salary negotiation. Um, and so like, because I wrote a book, I get reached out, um, uh, two for interview requests from very big sites that we've heard of. Yeah. And so I've been a, building a brand over a few years. And so I don't know how often this happens, but I'm guessing pretty often that somebody will find me, they'll find my site, they'll see my name, they'll see my coaching offering, they'll see that it's got a big price tag next to it. And then they'll go to Google and say, who is this guy? Uh-huh. And what they'll see is page after page of I'm on podcasts and I'm in Glassdoor and Forbes and all these other things, right? Yeah. Those all, all that stuff was because of the book. So like all the social proof and sort of body of work that I've built really starts with the seed was the book. Um, even though it's not what I sell, it's what enables me to position myself as the expert in this field. What if all that stuff was, okay, I know it possibly could not be the same without the book, but what if the book was on your website? Um, what if all the blog content was there? Maybe those external links pointing to your site might not be there because there was never a book to give you that credibility. But I'm trying to set up a thought experiment of what if there was no book, but the book was available for free. Do you think it, the whole thing would kind of work the same way or would that, is that really a critical piece that there's this, this PDF that has a price tag on it? I'm, I know I'm simplifying mm-hmm. by calling it a PDF with a price tag, but that's kind of what it is. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, I know we're way in speculative speculation land here. It's so hard for me to untangle the two because okay. they're, they're very, their Genesis is in the same place, which is me writing that book. Um, yes. Even the coaching, like as I was writing the book, I began coaching people to build the process that I wrote about in the book and to, to validate it. Okay. Uh, and so it's really hard for me, like the coaching definitely does not exist, but for the book. Yeah. And so it's hard for me to say, okay, well, what if I wrote the book and built the coaching and figure out how to do this process that I do? And then the book went away and I, I don't, I, I have a hard time getting there. Okay. Um, and I don't know enough about how my coaching clients find me. I mean, they'll tell me like they found you on Google or whatever, but I don't know how much of it is sort of dependent on them understanding that I wrote a book and how much of it is just word of mouth or whatever. I was not trying to make this point, but it reminds me that businesses are so, there's so many variables, even in a, like a quote unquote, simple business like yours, you're just one guy, right? Uh But even so it's, and this to me, doesn't speak, uh, is, you know, this is not a, um, a negative thing at all. It's just true. You could never know. You can't just point your finger at one factor and say, well, that, that made all the difference. Right. Yeah. I, no, I, you can't. I, I think it's a combination of 
factors. And even, you know, we only mostly talk about, there's a, a survivorship bias here too, which is like, we talk about the stuff that we think worked. Yeah. Um, but we don't talk necessarily about like the hundreds of experiments that I've run for even like lines of business that have completely and utterly failed. Yeah. Um, and because those aren't interesting, I guess, you know, but it's all part of one, one story, one process that ended with this. Yeah. And I feel an obligation to point that out, even as we get into a story that it would be tempting to twist into like, well, there was this one lever you pulled and it made all the difference. And it would be tempting for me to say that was positioning or specialization, mm -hmm. but that's just, I can't because it's not true. I can't say right. that because it's not true. So that's, that's more, you know, breaking the fourth wall and saying for the folks at home, as, as we get into what we're about to talk about, don't neglect all the other things that were happening. So, mm -hmm. you know, July last year, you said, I think software developers are where I should be focusing. Can you kind of pick up the story from there and talk a bit about what happened next? Yeah, I had been already kind of like earlier in the year, I had sort of decided that when I coach people, I think my better coaching clients are software developers. But I wasn't really kind of all in on coaching at all because I wanted to build quote unquote passive income or product business or whatever. That's and so sweet, sweet product revenue. Sweet, sweet product. <laughs> so I was working hard on that and kept, you know, I would book coaching clients and then work with them and then just like, I can't wait, wait to get back to this product stuff, you know? And, you know, so with that, you know, that was everything a product business entails, trying to build SEO and write articles and, yeah. you know, make, make new products and improve products and all that stuff. But again, you know, going back to our early conversation, like that's a hard way to build a business. I mean, it just takes time. And, you know, yeah. sometimes you'll have something that blows up, but usually it's going to be like a slow grind that looks a lot like building a SaaS or something like that. We're just having to find customers and find product market fit and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so coaching was like almost like a side thing that I did. Like I did it because people had started reaching out to me and saying, will you coach me? And I was like, yeah, I'll coach you. And I just kept raising my prices and I actually was charging a decent amount of the time. Mm -hmm. um, but I wasn't focusing my business on how do I get coaching clients? I was just taking them as they came. Can you say uh, how much you charge? That, can I ask you that just as a data point so folks can track this? Yeah. Uh, so at the time, I think I was charging $2,000. Okay. And that was, I'll coach you through a salary negotiation end to end. Yeah. Okay. Pretty much. Um, there are some, it, it, every situation is different. So it's hard to put a super tight box around the description of the service, but okay. that's basically it. Okay. Uh, and it was either, it, it was either, I think it was $2,000 at the time. Okay, uh, great. We can, maybe we can circle back on what I'm charging now, but it's, it's more. Oh, um, I will trust me. <laughs> so, so I was charging like two grand, which is like good, right? Like if I, if I could book one or two of those a month, like I was okay. Um, but I wasn't booking one or two every month because I wasn't really even, you know, telling people that that service was available because okay. I was so focused on just trying to build an email list and sell products to it with email funnels and stuff. Okay. Um, so I think I should say, I think I've since understood that really what I've done is built two different businesses that are almost completely unrelated. Um, <laughs> there's a coaching business and there's a product business and there are very little overlap. If you look at the customer base or the work that I do, like they're very separate tasks. Um, at the time I saw them all as one business and it still is kind of branded as one business, but they're really kind of two separate businesses. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I had been focusing on products and occasionally coaching people and I just wasn't selling enough products to make a living. And the coaching was super sporadic and was, you know, occasionally somebody would come in. So the good news was when I booked a coaching client, it was like a nice little paycheck. Yeah. The bad news was that it was just so random that they would even come in. Right. Um, 
And so that was kind of, kind of the beginning of the conversation that I had with my, my friend who runs the wealth management firm. And he's been watching the business from afar since before it began. Like he was aware when I was writing my book and everything. So he knows all of the history and everything that I do and kind of where I'm strong or I'm not. Yeah. And so that's where he said, you know, I, cause I was talking to him and saying like, I don't know how much longer I'm going to be able to keep this going. Like I'm starting to run out of cash cause I'd saved up cash to, to kind of as a runway to, mm-hmm. to sort of build this thing from scratch. So I didn't have to work for somebody else while I did it. Right. Um, I was like, you know, I'm kind of starting to poke around and look for day jobs and stuff. And that's when he said, well, I think your problem is you're trying to build this product business and that's a super hard thing to do. And you got to sell in large volume and you just don't have the kind of infrastructure you have to do that. Yeah. But you do have the infrastructure and the knowledge to sell like a premium service to people who can afford to pay, which are software developers at a pretty good price. And you can make a living that way. I think that you should go all in on coaching and use the product stuff as like a secondary thing that you can build up on the side. Right. Um, and so that was the, you know, when you and I spoke, that had just happened. And that was, you know, we're in the second month of my best months ever because I'm starting to book coaching clients because I'm trying to book coaching clients, yeah. uh, you know, reinvesting those resources. Um, so you were at that time um, sitting on top of a, what, at a 10,000 person email list or in a fair bit of sort of organic SEO traffic, right? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Let me think about this for a minute. I think I might have only been at like, I'm going to say like five 5,000 people on my email list or something. Okay. okay. And I think I was getting mm, 10 or 15,000 visits a month from Google. Right. So you, um, as I recall, said, okay, that's, that's my audience. I'm going to now start telling them that I offer coaching. Mm-hmm. And it was... Was it like turning on a faucet in that you just started to see inquiries for coaching happen where previously they'd been random and sporadic? Yeah, pretty. It was because I did a lot of things that I've kind of unwound now because they're not necessary. But like I literally focused everything on coaching. So I think I spent, you know, I started just telling my like my weekly broadcast were like, I'm coaching. You should hire me to coach you. Do you know any software developers who need coaching? I'll coach them, you know. Yeah. And then even on my site, like some of the CTAs that previously would have been like click here to read my articles or click here to buy my book were, you know, ne- need to negotiate a job offer question mark, get help mm-hmm. uh, with an arrow and a button. Right. Yeah. Um, just so everywhere that I could, you know, all my little slide in CTAs, I think I flipped them over to coaching. So I was driving a whole bunch of, you know, not even remotely qualified traffic to it, but I was basically like, I'm just going to only talk about coaching for a while and just tell everybody about coaching. And if they right. happen to buy books, that's fine. Yeah. Um, and it was, I mean, the the jump in revenue i think more or less speaks for itself like all of a sudden like i had coaching clients yeah. um, and some of that was directly from those ctas and emails and some of it i think was that i had sort of staked my claim i changed my twitter profile bio to be salary negotiation coach click here to get set coaching you know and then a link to my coaching page so i think part of it was the actual traffic that i was already getting was now aware of it and kind mm-hmm. of engaging with it and I think part of it was that because I actually hung out a shingle and said, this is what I do, that I think people might have been talking about it more or reaching out to me more, or referring people to me more, or even just sort of like, I was on the fence, but I have an opportunity and this is what he does. So I'm going to reach out to him, you know? Yeah. Okay. So again, about a year ago when we spoke last, there was this uncertainty. Can, can this last? Yeah. <laughs> Are there are there six people out there who need coaching? And I've now worked with four of them, right? right. Like that's yeah. the question you already have. You, you always have that early into a, a nice revenue bump. Yep. So what did you find out about that as the year unfolded? 
I found out that so far, I do not think that I've exhausted the list of people who need salary negotiation coaching yet. Okay. Uh, <laughs> With some the, 20 million software developers out there, I would, I would concur. <laughs> yeah. So 20 million software developers who are, you know, let's say every two years on average, they're changing companies. So yeah, right. there's a nice steady cyclone of software developers moving around that I can, I can, you know, storm chase basically. Right. Um, and so there was a, we were at the beginning of the first step function, which was my revenue went boop and just like took a step up yeah. and that's been durable. And I've not fallen below that step. I'm looking at that number now. Let me, let me confirm this. Yeah. Um, uh, give or take. So, yeah. so that I'm in that ballpark, which was like multiples of where I've been before, like two or three times what I typically got all of a sudden my revenue jumped up to two or three times and it just sat there and then w was pretty durable through the year. Right. Um, and then again, I had another step function in like February of this year, um, which was, you know, again, like maybe 50% more or even hundred percent more some months. Why, um, why did that happen? I don't know. So this is a meta conversation. I think that we kind of got a, around earlier, but, um, one, I think I raised my prices earlier this year. And yeah. so, you know, the same volume at higher prices means more dollars. Yeah. Um, but, um, I think I also just sort of started to, I can, I'm taking advantage of the fact that like, I've just been around long enough that people know who I am and are starting to point people to me. And so, that's a, that's a meta concept that you and I didn't talk about earlier, but it's like, you know, we were talking about doing all the right things and changing your positioning and, you know, flipping levers and stuff like that. Like, I think a lot of the, the real driver for like business growth is you survive long enough to figure out what you need to do to grow your business. Um, right. Which I almost missed that. Right. We're not having this conversation. If I didn't have that conversation and flip some levers, like I may have gone out of business a year ago and I wouldn't be able to tell the story. Right. But because I was able to just barely hang on and get a little bit more revenue and start trying new things and doubling down on, down on things, then my revenue, took off and now I have, you know, like a real business. Um, so I think it was just kind of time, a confluence of time, maybe some seasonality. Um, you know, I started getting, you know, I started working with sort of higher dollar clients. So I started moving from like the low to mid six figures up to the occasional like seven figure total comp type client. Yeah. Um, and, um, getting a few of those is, you know, the way that I price my stuff is pretty valuable. So I think it was, it's just a combination of time and just being there. I mean, I, I've noticed that in my own business as well, that things that w used to be things I had to fight for, like, um, getting, you know, private coaching clients now just, they don't happen automatically, but they happen more readily. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there's, I, I, I think that's the pattern that others see. So I feel emboldened to ask you. What did you do to last through the tough parts? And I'm not talking about like, well, I know you had runway, which yeah. is like, that's critical. Yeah. But emotionally, what did you do to tough it out? Or maybe you didn't tough it out. Maybe you had some other approach. Maybe it wasn't a grind. But how did you last that long emotionally when it, because I, I know that there was more than one month where you were like, maybe... I should quit. Maybe I should do something different. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, that's a tough, man, that's a tough question. Um, they, they did, well, I, don't, I don't ask any softballs here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think it's a combination of some, some things, you know, I had the runway, but the runway was running out. Right. Um, you know, the, the early last year was just kind of in general, like things just weren't breaking my way. Yeah. You know, I was just kind of running. I used to play poker. So that we would, the term of our would be, I was just kind of running bad. Yeah. Like, 
you know, you have, uh, you know, when you're running bad, it's not that like you're playing poorly or anything. It's just that you have all these, you know, situations where where a certain probability you'll succeed or get the result you want. And with another probability you won't. And just for some reason you have a series of those probabilities going against you every time. Um, And so that's kind of where I found myself at the beginning of last year. I think it was a combination of, you know, I have a really good sort of, uh, my family supports me. Uh, They're there for me. You know, I had some conversations with my dad who's been, you know, he's worked for himself for 30 years and has gone through this exact same stuff. And so he could kind of talk to me about, you know, maybe a little silver lining hunting yeah, um, right. where he could be like, well, listen, you know, like, yeah, you're not maybe where you want it to be, but look at all the stuff that you've done, you know, look at how many people have bought your book and like, you're clearly becoming known as an expert in this area. So just encouragement from my family. Yeah. Um, I also actually made a conscious decision, which I think was pretty key at the beginning of last year. Uh, before last year, I had been basically working seven days a week to either build this business or learn how to build businesses or get an MBA or whatever I was doing for like yeah. six or seven years. Okay. And I was getting burnt out and um, tired. And also, I'd become sort of a hermit. Yeah. And so I made a really conscious effort to sort of become involved in a community, which for me, my primary community is based around the church that I attend here in Gainesville. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm just attending church, but also the friends that I have from church. And we all are very close outside of church. And so, um, you know, we have a weekly community group that meets and just eats dinner together. And like, you yeah. know, we encourage each other and stuff. And so that I think was really key because it was a way for me to say, uh, basically to make sure that I didn't find my own identity as a person who was building a business that might be failing, but oh, as somebody yeah. who's a friend or a son yeah. or whatever that was that also happened to do business stuff. Right. Um, so I think, you know, that's super high level, but I think that was a lot of it was I made a conscious sort of almost strategic decision that like, I cannot just be a hermit and do this all by myself. I have to seek my family and friends and community and I have to be involved there and let the chips fall where they may. Like if the business fails, that's okay. Especially if I have a strong community, like I'll, I'll land on my feet. But if the business fails and I don't have a strong community and something behind me, what do I have to fall back on? Now I, I'm just a guy who's alone and has a failed business, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so I think I kind of saw that coming. Like I knew the possibility was real that my business wasn't going to work. Yeah. And at the same time got kind of tired of just working in a, in a silo all the time all by myself and said, I need to separate these two things. Like I need to keep working on the business, but it's not healthy for me to just sort of be a hermit all the time. Did you also draw a line in the sand and say, I am not working on the weekend or any, anything like any other kind of, uh, changes like that? Uh, it wasn't like a, a hard line in the sand, but I did start working less. Yeah. So, so a big reason I hadn't been involved, for example, like in my local church, which is literally like I could almost throw a rock. Like I think you could hit a golf ball from here and you could hit okay. the church, right? Like it's, a, yeah. it's in my office, like it's downtown two and a half blocks from here. I wasn't yeah. going because I was like, I don't have time. Like I've got to build this business or I'm going to fail. I'm going to go broke. Uh-huh. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't attending church. I wasn't like hanging out with my friends, they'd be like, Hey, we're going to go see a movie. And I'd be like, that's great. But this is the third working shift of the day. And I just have to keep working. Mm -hmm. So I started backing off of that. And one of the first lines that I drew was I'm going to start becoming involved in my church, which means I'm Mm -hmm. not just going to work through Sunday morning every week. I'm not going to work through Thursday night when we meet for that weekly meetup, you know? Right. And so it was like kind of claim reclaiming small parts of my schedule, which had been totally conscripted by work. Um, Now I have harder lines in the sand. Like I rarely work in the evening. I almost never take my laptop home with me from my office. Mm -hmm. Um, I almost never work on the weekends anymore. Um, And that was a gradual thing that happened because of the beginning of what I just described. And also because my business started working and I was like, I'm not going to work. So like I built this business so I wouldn't have to be working for somebody else 50 hours a week. So I need to start leveraging the thing that I built. 
Um, yeah. but it, it, but the first thing I did was start to claim back my time. And I think that actually helped me be more focused on what I was doing in my business too. Like, I think it was easier for me to be intentional about, I, I need to accomplish these six things this week, which means I can't goof off on Tuesday morning because yeah. I'm not going to be able to work on Thursday night this week. So I have to crank this stuff out and be really intentional with what I'm focusing on. Okay. That's great. So the, the specialization or positioning decision that you made last year ish was to focus on software developers only in the coaching, because I, you never changed your book. It was never like salary negotiation for software developers or anything like that. It, like that change was kind of constrained to the coaching. Is that right? Yeah. So that's an interesting sort of almost a false start by me where I noticed that the coaching clients who got the most value for me were software developers. I'm a software developer. I'm an engineer. I have a pretty, you know, I have my contacts in that community for years now. Right. Right. Um, You know, you know, Patrick McKenzie was one of the first people I talked to about salary negotiation. He's, you know, very deep in that community. And so I thought maybe I should just entirely focus my positioning on um, software developers. And so that kind of started with coaching because that was an easy thing to do because I just kept finding that if I coach software developers, it's like a slam dunk, easy win for them. If I coach other people, sometimes they get a win, but sometimes they don't because they're in like a weird industry or they have a weird job or something like that. And so it started there. And then I thought maybe I'll backfill that and say, I'm going to position all my marketing and stuff like that for my book to software developers, or I actually thought about writing fearless salary negotiation for software developers. Like Mm -hmm. I'll just create a neat book for them. Right. Um, I didn't do that because of what I mentioned earlier. So I did focus. Now I advertise. If you look at my coaching page or anything else around coaching, it says for software developers, all the numbers given are, you know, on average software developers get this much more money or they get these benefits. It's all for software developers. And so occasionally somebody will reach out and say, well, I'm not a developer. Can you help me? Which you predicted before I did it. I believe your, your phrase was, I will buy you a steak dinner if you don't get a client <laughs> who, who asks you to coach them, even though they're not a developer. Um, so you do not owe me a steak dinner. We should have made that uh, a two-way bet where I get the, yeah. uh, the free dinner anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> wouldn't, have, wouldn't have been a binding contract legally. I don't think, uh, without yeah. consideration on both sides. Cross, cross um, state lines, yada, yada. Yeah. There's a lot of <laughs> confounding issues with that bet, but I definitely would have made you buy me a steak dinner if nobody had ever bought it from me. I would or, have gladly done it. It would have made for a good email. Um, anyway, so, uh, you know, actually it's funny. I have thanks to a recent interview I did on this podcast, I'm starting to get some numbers from people uh, about what percentage of their clients are outside the specialization. Uh, for this one guy, uh, Gene, that I interviewed recently, it was 40% of his clients are outside his wow. audience focus of entrepreneurs. Uh, would you hazard a guess? I know you probably don't have the numbers right in front of you. It's low. It, 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 for me, it's not anywhere near 40. That's a okay. big number. I'm it, it's, you know, 5% or something like okay. that. Okay. Okay. Anyway, so... Yes. Uh, where were we? <laughs> Specialization, focusing on software developers. Yep. I decided not to focus my product business on software developers. And the reason was, and this is why I mentioned earlier, there are two different businesses, right? The the primary marketing channel for my coaching is Google or referrals, or the third one would be like a hodgepodge of like uh, uh, external content or whatever podcasts that I've been on or articles that I've guest written for different companies. Right. Right. Uh, to be clear, when you say Google, you mean organic search traffic, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cause you're, you're not, you don't do any paid advertising as far as I know. <laughs> no, no. Uh, I don't, I can't talk myself into it because I get so much traffic now. It's like, why would I pay for one click when I get this many? This is um, probably the right time to point out you are, if, if someone goes to Google and types in salary negotiation, is that this 
the phrase for which you're the number one search result now? Yeah, usually. Number zero search result a lot of times. Google actually uses it. my stuff as a featured snippet on that, that search. Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, so to that point, I was building that, that SEO side of things, and it was not built around software developer stuff. It was built around salary negotiation or interviewing or how to get a raise or an email template to negotiate a job offer, yeah. which was you know, career agnostic. And so I was starting to get, you know, like I said, I was getting 10 or 15,000 visits a month. Most of those were not software developers. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, man, this is a big ship to steer towards software developers, and it's going to be a much smaller market. Yeah. What if I just keep building the SEO side of things just for more, a more general career book? which is what my book is anyway, mm-hmm. just let that marketing machine continue to build. And then I'll just focus all my coaching efforts on software developers exclusively. Mm-hmm. Um, so I backed off of it. My plan was to focus and niche down to software developers, but I realized that my primary marketing channel was Google search and none of the uh, traction that I got in there was around software developer stuff. It yeah. was all around more generic career stuff. And so I thought, I think I know how to keep growing that, which I have. I'm now closer to like hundred K a month um, visitors from Google. Yeah. And so that's how you build that high volume, low dollar business, I think is a broad market with, you know, tight copy and stuff like that. So I just kind of let that ride and focus my coaching efforts on software developers exclusively. Got it. Okay. So that's how you now have ended up with being the owner of two businesses. (laughs) Yes. One of them is a coaching business where I coach software developers and one of them is a broader like W2 employee salary and earning what you're worth business. Yeah. So if you if we look at this as like a, a HBR case business case study, um, man, it's been a long time since I read any of those, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and we think about the the critical decisions that you made along the way. You you got it right with the focusing the coaching on software developers, or or you didn't get it wrong. Like that that worked well enough. It was a you know pretty functional decision like the outcome yes. was was net positive for you i think net positive but also was um not only right but but close to the most right that i could have been mm-hmm. um because i think with like w2 folks i could have eventually kind of found a way to level up into like c-level coaching mm-hmm. um but software developers are so, so unique because you can be a senior software developer and get like a five hundred thousand dollar job offer right now mm-hmm. and so I was talking earlier about kind of leverage and the maximum value that I can provide. Like I can provide a lot of value to software developers who get job offers because their offers are already so big. So by, uh, you know, you know, using the methodology that I've built, the uh, ROI for them is significantly higher in nominal terms and and just, you know, actual dollars they can get than it would be for like a regular W2 employee. Um, So I think the only way I really could have built like a sustainable coaching business on salary negotiation that wasn't focused on software developers would have been, if I somehow found my way to parlaying into like a C level uh, contract negotiation coach or something. Right. Uh, But I think that would have been a really tough way to go um, because that you have to kind of start at the bottom and the bottom there is mostly people who can't afford to hire somebody where I could charge them enough that I can make a living by learning how to coach them and and building up my pedigree so I can work with C-level people. Um, whereas right. like an entry level software developer, I could charge them enough right away and get enough value for them right away that I could start building that business and actually kind of have a sustainable business, even at like the entry level kind of role for that type of person. How much of that was apparent to you at the time, like the, the sort of subtle genius of that decision compared to in retrospect? 
I think it came in retrospect, but it came early because mm-hmm. like the first person who ever paid me to coach her was uh, like a, a freelance mark, free, freelance copywriter. Okay. Right. And the second person who paid me to coach her was um, she worked in healthcare as, as like a, a manager in healthcare of some kind. Right. Right. So I was getting those clients, but they were super, you know, I wasn't charging them very much. And then I got like a software developer and whoa, well, got them a bunch of money. You know, I was like, I got pretty good results for these other folks, but wow, the software developer made a lot more money. Oh, uh, so it was immediate apparent, the dynamics, the different dynamics for software develops, developers were immediately apparent to you, it sounds like. Yeah, within like a couple of clients, I yeah. thought, you know, wow, like there's a lot of potential here that I can help with, whereas I'm, I'm pretty constrained with the other folks that I work with. So it was, it was pretty quick that I started recognizing like, when I get software developer clients, I can really move the needle for them. When I get these other clients, I can help them, but not nearly as much as these software developer clients. Um, so what kind of time frame are we talking about? Like, in other words, how long did you need from making the decision, starting to test it, to get to the point where you said, this was the right decision? I have very few doubts that, about this decision. I mean, I think it was like instantaneous. Okay. Um, it, it was, you know, because the com- the conversation we had last year was like six weeks after I made this decision to focus on coaching software yeah. developers yeah. and to say my my business is my you know to change my 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 global positioning to salary negotiation coach for software developers, right? From from the time that I did that until the time that you and I talked was like five weeks, and I was already saying like last month was my best month ever, and this month is just as good. Yeah. Uh, comma, I don't know if this is sustainable. Let's keep an eye on it. Right. Um, so it has turned out to be sustainable. It has, um, I mean, do you see month over month growth or I'm not asking for specific numbers, but like the trend of more revenue has continued. You mentioned those big ratchets up to, to significant ratchets up, but has the overall trend been increasing revenue? Yeah. The overall trend has been increasing revenue. It's very lumpy. Yeah. Um, which I think is to be expected. I mean, if you just think about it, like in terms of math, like we're, we're talking about, you know, big, big chunks that I'm charging. Right. Yeah. And so it, it's different if you're charging $10 and it's like, well, I had a thousand, you know, customers this month and 980 customers this month. Like it'll be kind of a smooth, yeah. you know, seasonality will be the biggest swings. Whereas for me, it's like, there can be a big difference month to month if I book, you know, two clients or three clients. Right. (laughs) That's a big swing for me. Um, But in general, the numbers are going up. And like I said, there was a a stair step um, in June of last year. And then there were all the numbers were kind of clustered around that stair step until February this year. And then there was another stair step. um, And all the numbers have been clustered around that number, give or take, you know, a wide margin, but, but I haven't yet fallen below that stair step. Um, That's great. uh, This month, it looks like I might fall below that stair step, but I think that's probably uh, lag from, I got really tired in April and May this year and really took my foot off the gas in terms of like trying to book new clients and market, um, because I just kind of needed a break. And I think I'm now starting to see that kind of on the back end. Yeah. So you and I have talked briefly, I think about a potential secondary focus on a different type of professional. And I'm wanting to get you to talk about that a little bit. But before we do, it's just so interesting to me that I I think you're starting to see the the sort of the armature that makes this machine work, which is your business, which is find this type of customer that can get an incredible ROI from what I do. 
And I think you've now possibly identified a second type of customer in, in the medical field. We can talk yeah. about that, right? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So was that a conscious decision of like, let me try to find another customer where the dynamics are similar, where they can get this great ROI, or did you more stumble into that? Or how did you discover the second customer type for you? <laughs> the second customer type, which is, I would say if I, it, the, the tightest, I think I can, I might be able to get tighter than this, but I think the way I would describe them is um, uh, graduating emergency medicine physicians. That's so it's pretty specific. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, specific. it's specific enough, I think. Um, I, that was serendipity. So I just happened to be in Gainesville, which is a college town. And yeah. we have the University of Florida School of Medicine is very good yeah. and attracts a lot of really good doctors. And um, I happen to know a lot of people who are graduating med school and several of them have clustered around the emergency medicine specialty. Okay. Um, and so uh, I think the first time it occurred to me to, to try and even work with them was I was at one of those, um, you know, weekly uh, community group meetings, yeah. uh, you know, uh, for, for church, like the, you know, we have dinner and just kind of hang out. Yeah. And one of the pre- people I know is graduating. And I heard the, I heard the phrase that always makes my ears burn, which is, yeah, but I don't think it's negotiable. <laughs> um, what, what are you guys talking about? And I kind of butt in, you know, it's like, oh, it's like you know, everybody's starting to graduate. We're all graduating in the next year. And so we're all starting to look for, you know, where we're going to actually get our job first contract. And, but you know, it's not negotiable. And I said, well, tell me more about like, you know, and so I, so I just sort of asked you to just, and I'm just a naturally curious person, which is a huge asset for me, which is, yeah. I wasn't asking because I was thinking like, Oh, there's a business line. I was asking because I genuinely wanted to know like what makes this so unique that it's not negotiable because that's really weird. Like yeah. most of the time when people get paid money for something, that amount that they get paid is negotiable on some dimension. Yeah. So I just kept peppering him and talking to more and more. And then eventually I think I, I one of my friends was convinced that I could help. Right. He wasn't like a, a couple of the people I talked to were a little skeptical. They had heard that maybe you could get a bigger signing bonus, but they always heard that you just, you get offered a contract at a hospital or whatever, and you just kind of take the contract. Okay. Uh, but a friend of mine was like, I got nothing to lose. Like, how do I negotiate this thing? And so I coached him through his negotiation. He got a bunch more money and a reduced uh, schedule. So he works fewer hours. Huh. Um, and, and then he immediately started referring people to me yeah. <laughs> because, because he would be, it would just come up and they'd be like, ah, blah, blah, blah. And you know, the word kind of got around that he might've negotiated his offer and yeah. like, how's that possible? And so he would tell people like, oh, you just got to talk to Josh. So I coached a couple of people that he knew and they got more money. And so then I thought, well, maybe this is a different kind of, you know, service offering. Um, and so I still haven't formalized it. And the reason is um, we're a couple of months out from like when the busy season starts, it's very cyclical um, because med schools all kind of end and the contracts all begin at the same time. Yeah. And so it's super cyclical, but it's something that I'm going to look at here in the fall, you know, trying to get some more of those clients. Um, They also happen to be, and this again is serendipity, you know, certain specialties pay very well and emergency medicine is one of those specialties. And so we're not talking about, you know, high five, low six figure contracts. We're talking like low to mid six figure contracts. So there's a lot of opportunity for me to get in there with my methodology and, you know, make big moves. Um, so, so that's how ter- I found it. Yeah. In terms of applying your methodology to a specific vertical, how much of it is just the same every time? How much of it is, has to be uh, modified to fit the specifics of how software engineers are hired versus how emergency medical professionals are hired? 
Yeah, I, I did. So I actually, uh, I think there's still a landing page somewhere on my site for this. I thought that I might write a book for graduating physicians. Uh-huh. Uh, and so I started diving deep and talking to some of those same people I've been talking to about the contracts, yeah. about all the weird minutiae that go into like these contracts for physicians at hospitals and private groups and all this stuff. And it's like much more complicated than like a software developer going to Google. Much right. more complicated. Uh-huh. And so I spent probably a month just doing research and like interviewing them and asking them about all the ins and outs and different times. And to be honest with you, like I probably understand maybe 50% of it and the rest of it, when I work with somebody, I just kind of figure it out as I go. Sure. Meaning like their contract is going to be different than other contracts I've seen. And so right. I just kind of gave up on the idea that I could like know all the contracts that I'm going to see and what they're going to look like. Right. Um, so in general, my strategy is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I use a lot of the same sort of ver- verbiage and terminology and email templates. And my strategy overall is the same, you know, wait for them to make you an offer, counter offer on the thing that's most important to you, mm-hmm. you know, and this, this magnitude and stuff like that. But um, there's also a lot of kind of unique to physicians stuff that I have to pay attention to in terms of like the contours of their contracts and kind of anticipating what is and what isn't negotiable. Cause there are things that are negotiable and there are things that are usually not mm-hmm. uh, because they're set at a group level. Um, so, so it was just sort of like, I, I do research, I would say maybe 50, 50 that, you know, my overall strategy, my overall philosophy and me- methodology works pretty well for pretty much anybody. But when you get into the nitty gritty of like, well, where should we focus our energy and how should we counter and, and how do we bundle stuff? That'll be vertical specific sometimes. Got it. So as you get deeper into emergency medical uh, doctors, what's going to change is it like you just get more profitable at the coaching thing because you're spending less time figuring out stuff on the fly? Or in other words, what will be the benefit of you developing expertise within that vertical? The benefit to you and perhaps the benefit to your clients? Yeah, I mean, the benefit is um, that I'm... I'm trying to be careful about how I articulate this. Mm-hmm. So, so the benefit is obviously I can make more money because I get more customers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's also sort of an emotional benefit for me, which is I just like to help people. And I know yeah. that sounds really cheesy, but like any anytime, I think I, honestly I close a lot of my coaching deals because they talk to me and they hear how enthusiastic I am about helping them and they just want to hire me to work with them. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's a benefit to me of like, I think doctors are doing good things and especially emergency medicine physicians are doing good and just crazy things to save lives literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, they have a lot of med school debt and I can help them pay that debt down faster and, and have less emotional stress. Right. And yeah. so those are, those are the sort of the emotional benefits to it. Um, it's also a separate line of business for me. So I think it makes my business more durable. Right. Yeah. Like uh, right now I don't plan to like go bonkers and try and get tons and tons of ER doctors to be my clients because mm-hmm. the software developer business is going pretty well, mm-hmm. but I could see a world where like maybe that business starts to slow down a little bit. I can then go over to the ER doctor uh, business and kind of ramp that up and put more effort into it. Yeah. Um, and, and that might allow me to be just more diversified and less sort of dependent on this one. You know, there's, there are, there are economic and, and other types of shocks that could occur mm-hmm. that would cause the software developer salary negotiation coaching business to dry up. It very quickly. Yeah. Um, and so on the other hand, we're, you know, doctors are maybe immune to those shocks. So it's a diversification strategy. It's, it's um, helping people that are in a different niche. Um, and it's also just an opportunity, like, like you said, like I'm constantly looking for what are the high leverage things that I can do with my knowledge, which, you know, we've talked about SEO and stuff, but that's another one where like, I like to work with companies where I can really move the needle for them on SEO. 
right? Yeah. Or, or, or even just business strategy or content strategy or whatever. And so it's just another high leverage place where I was like, oh, wow, like if my methodology works with these doctors, they can make a lot more money. And mm -hmm. so I should try to apply my methodology and see if I'm right. Mm. So this has been great, Josh. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, this has been great. So here's where you are. This, I mean, this is, we kind of are up to date with where you are today and maybe we'll have a third installment. We'll see. <laughs> I'll set a reminder yeah. for a year out from now to, cause I always love checking in with where people are and what's changed. Where would you send folks to learn more about your book or perhaps to contact you for some salary negotiation coaching? Yeah. So, um, probably the best place is fearless com. That's where all my book and articles and, and stuff is. And then on that site at fearlesssalarynegotiation.com slash coach is where you can, you know, even if you're just curious, like, what is, what does this coaching offering look like? Like, what is the offer? Uh, you can see it there and I've got my fee structure and, and all that good stuff there. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, that's probably the best place to go. You can also, you know, if you want to know more about me, I'm Josh Duty on Twitter and I like to answer questions on Twitter. I'm pretty active on there. So that's a good place just to kind of like find Josh if you just, if you just want to ask me a question or something. 